This episode is brought to you by Holistic Performance Nutrition. If you're looking to further your nutrition study, start a new career, or just learn some cool shit, then HBN is the course for you. HBN offers a range of options for your nutrition study, from foundations of nutrition science right through to full training courses to become a holistic and performance nutrition coach or holistic and performance nutritionist. Also, short courses in ketogenic nutrition science, the business of health practice, and functional mycology, and much, much more. Head to holisticperformancenutrition.com and enter GOOD into the coupon code to receive 10% off your course fee. Today I'm joined by Dr. Cliff Harvey. I've known Cliff for a number of years and long admired his wisdom, intellect and perspective on life and how to live it. His brain is matched by his brawn as a world record holder in a number of events including the thumbless deadlift, although as far as I know he does have thumbs, and the two-man deadlift. Mm, pretty sure that's just cheating Cliff anyway all very damn impressive I always enjoy chatting to Cliff I hope you enjoy it too Cliff how are you? I'm not sure we got there <laughs> <laughs> are, we, are we on? we are good blip, what, blip is real what time is it over there? good question 2pm 2, 2 and what, what year is that Cliff? <laughs> I think I think it's 2040. It yep. feels like we're living in an apocalyptic future. Behind us. What's that? I'm never sure if New Zealand's ahead of us or behind us. We're ahead, mate. The, the future, um, in the next two hours, things get really weird. Right, okay. <laughs> well, you're actually ahead of us in, in many respects. You've got quite the prime minister there, hey? I think, not, yeah, not I, I, I mean, I, I think that we've we've done a really good job till now. Um, you know, I don't think any country's handled it perfectly and there's a lot that needs to be done going forward. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of debate now about how we can actually work with this move forward. Uh, you know, not have economies collapse um, and, and also prepare for this happening again. I mean, I think we've known for literally decades that there is going to be a pandemic you know, and, and, mm. and so it was never, this could happen. It's, this is going to happen. So how do we prepare? And I think that it's showing that a lot of governments weren't really prepared for this because everyone's scrambling now to figure out the best course of action. Yeah, it's funny. Um, in that book that you recommended me, the, the Dave Sinclair um, Lifespan book, I don't know whether you recall because you read it a few months back, but there's actually a, um, a couple of pages that he actually talks about the, this very, the threat of what we're actually experiencing right now is that there will be at some point this virus that affects the globe and, and impacts economies right across the globe. And we need to kind of safeguard ourselves as much as we can because it's sort of inevitable and it, it will happen, not um, if it happens sort of thing. Yeah, and that's, that's where I think people have had a bit of a disconnect. They sort of thought, well, this, this could happen but they were, no one was really thinking this will happen. You know, it's, it's going to happen. There, there is absolutely no doubt that there will be pandemic illnesses. There have been pandemic illnesses. You know, the 1918 um, yeah. flu, flu virus, the H1N1, that, that killed more people than World War I. Yeah. Um, according to some estimates, it killed more people than both World War I and World War II yeah. combined. That's crazy. It's, it's crazy. And now we're obviously better prepared because we have a better you know, overall better health system, better levels of development. We've got better um, 
you know, testing, diagnostics, tracing, all that kind of stuff. But we also have a truckload more travel. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what implications this is going to have for us socially. Like, what, what, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think people will travel less? Do you think people will change their social habits? I think, I think certainly sort of short term after the, you know, let, let's assume everything returns to normal in six months. I think there'll be a, a reaction, a, a very sort of cautious reaction for the next however long, you know, maybe maybe going into years that people will be very sort of cautious as to um, traveling with or being around large um, groups of people. I think it even might shape the nature in which we meet and greet people. Um, it's hard to know right now how, how the, how it's going to impact and what the ramifications are, but um, I, I think people are going to become more cautious. I don't know whether that will um, stick around for for the rest of time, but um, I, I was actually talking to Teal last night about how quite amazing and staggering it is that, on the whole, with a few few sort of exceptions, on the whole, everyone has just conformed uh, and resigned to this kind of home isolation protocol. You know, if, if you'd if you'd sort of projected, you know, six months ago that we'd all be sort of um, told to stay in home and home isolated, everyone would be like, "Go fuck yourself." That that'd never happen, right? There'd be too many people pushing against that. But you know, as as I say, aside from a few exceptions, everyone is just doing what you know they've been told to do. It's quite it's quite. Mm. And how strict is it there? Are, are you guys? Are you? locked into your homes well not locked into your homes but are you pretty much stuck at home or can you do limited things like what what's the extent of it there um we are it's okay to leave the house for um uh you know if you want to go to the pharmacy or the grocery or the sort of essential trips yeah um you can exercise i think in company like one other uh, you can walk your dog, walk your walk your kid, or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not. Um, they haven't gone to the lengths of a lockdown, so there's not sort of patrols that are, are you know monitoring this stuff. It's all sort of suggestive. Um, but on the whole, like, oh, the beaches are starting to be closed. We, um, Tasha and I, and my son went for a surf, or tried to go for a surf um, about a week ago, and we got to the beach and they turned us around. Um, so I think I think sort of yeah we we it's not like the UK where um, there's been it's been enforced that you're in in lockdown, but you kind of almost well as maybe you know yeah. What, what are you guys doing? Pretty much the same. Where you know there, there's a, a strict well it's not an advisory it's a sort of strict. Um, situation in which we, we have to stay home uh there's you know you can you can same thing you can leave your house basically to go to the the supermarket dairy pharmacy that's it um or if you're involved in an essential business and you can go for a walk and they suggest sort of one one walk a day to go out and, and get some fresh air but you've got to keep you know two meters plus from any other person and you can't congregate you can't stop you know you basically just got to go out for a walk and that's it um, and they are starting to enforce that quite, 
quite strictly. So I know that if, if people are gathering or if um, people aren't, you know, going by the rules there, I think there have been some res- arrests. I'm not sure, but they're, they're certainly, um, you know, stopping people if they think they might be driving somewhere that's not essential. Right. So it's, it's pretty full on. And I think obviously it's, it's necessary right now. Uh, one of the things that I'm grappling with and one of the things that I think people need to, to be discussing is what does this mean in the medium to long term? So, you know, at, at what point do we start to relax restriction for two reasons, really, so that we don't have a massive economic collapse uh, and also so that we can actually allow, if there is conferred immunity from having caught this thing, um, if, that we can then allow basically those who are well enough to probably not experience symptoms to basically catch it at a very slow rate. I know this sounds really bad, but catch it at a really slow rate to get that herd immunity mm. so that then there's not a second spike. Because if you just lock it down mm. and you pretty much stop transmission, I know that's almost impossible. Let's say you could stop transmission, mm. but there are still some carriers when you res- relax restrictions, you could have a big surge, right? And that's the danger, as everyone knows, is it's not so much the the mortality per se, although that's obviously devastating for the people involved. It's more so that if we have that big surge, there's going to be a massive impact on the, the hospital systems, and that's going to lead to healthcare collapse, which could lead to economic calamity. You know, all those sorts of things spring from it. Um, but But a lot of my colleagues now are starting to talk about, well, we're, you know, we're probably on the right track now. But what do we do going forward so that we don't create longer term economic and social damage um, that could actually result in in poorer health outcomes in the long term? Because, mm. you know, if, if we create a whole bunch of poverty, we know that that worsens people's health outcomes. You know, we know that then there'll be a skyrocketing in diabetes and um, heart disease and all these various things that are associated with with living, um, you know, in a state of poverty. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess taking a um, a positive sort of from this, that there will be, and you can almost start to see it happening, there will be innovation occur as a re- direct result of what we're experiencing. You know, I've seen it from a company sort of being nimble and sort of twisting and, and um, creating something completely different to what they they, they currently have or, or a morphed version of that. Yeah. Um, and also new businesses that are, I mean, what we're on now, this platform, Zoom, oh, they'd be fucking sky high right now, wouldn't they? Well, Bella told me one day, I think it was last week or the previous, one of the last two weeks, in one day, there were 600,000 downloads of Zoom. Yeah, right. One day. Like, that. that's massive. Yeah, um, And I think, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to my um, my colleagues at Newsiest just before all this went down and we had already gone remote, right? Because my, my companies are mostly remote anyway. So we, we all work in, you know, different places. You know, my, um, our, our member support person for HPN lives in the States and uh, Bella and I are here in Auckland and, you know, we've got other contributors who are around, around about. So we're basically remote anyway, but it was interesting with Newsies that, uh, well, Newsies New Zealand, they were talking about, going remote and then using this as an opportunity to also see how that might positively impact the, our staff, right? Being able to work more from home, not necessarily having to go into the office. 
And I know that a lot of businesses are looking at that as uh, it's almost like an exercise right now and seeing what can be done because maybe we don't need as much infrastructure, you know, maybe we don't need all the big buildings and offices and stuff yeah, like that. It's a bit of an archaic system, like sort of that we sort of inherited from, from decades you know, where mm. the infrastructure was such that you had to be in the same building at the same time, but we don't live by those rules necessarily anymore. No, and, and I think we, we need some aspect of community and we need to be together actually face-to-face at times. But maybe it's, there's a balance there. Maybe we can do you know, a lot more work from home. Maybe we can meet up in a shared space you know, two days a week or whatever it happens to be and, and just find different ways to, to work with this. So I agree with you. There's some, some interesting opportunities that could come out of it. Yeah. There's also potentially some, some worrying things that probably won't occur. But I was talking about this with a friend the other day. I'm really thankful that we live in a country that is you know considered one of the least corrupt in the world we have overall a pretty good police force and government uh we're you know very democratic fairly progressive socially you know all that kind of stuff because i wonder in countries where that's not the case how an increase in i guess government control could lead to some some pretty heavy shit going down <laughs> like less freedom yeah sort of thing yeah under the guise of you know we're doing this for your own good but yeah i was talking to till about that it's kind of um yeah it is an opportunity if you if your mind allows yourself to to think this way that it could be an opportunity for the state to kind of you know um yeah it's, it's almost like they've got you now you know they're, they're controlling the, the the flow of um support finance um yeah i don't know i don't know whether and it's probably not you know it's probably not going to be something that actually impacts us because we we generally have pretty good faith in our governments and i i do have you know a lot of faith in our democratic systems and the way that things work but i i think when you start to talk about these types of issues, people can immediately say, oh, you're just being a conspiracy theorist or, yeah. you know, you're, you're sort of... That's why I stopped myself. Like, exactly. Or you're neglecting the actual issue at hand, which is that we have a pandemic. But, you know, most people who are discussing these issues sensibly, they're, they're not ignoring the problem. The problem obviously is that we can't let this thing get a hold whereby it basically destroys our health system straight up. Mm-hmm. But I think we, we would also be remiss if we didn't look at the way society works and maybe use this as an opportunity to, to try and make it better and to not fall into negative habits. You know, all of us can remember what happened post 9-11. You know, governments, particularly the US government, did use that and maybe they had best intentions, maybe some people didn't, we just don't know, but there was certainly an increase in domestic surveillance and that's well known, it's on the record. You know, they were doing things that were illegal. They were spying on their own citizens. So, hey, they're not, no, as far as I know, no one's doing that as a result of this, but I don't see a problem with discussing these interesting social aspects because uh, hopefully these are ways that we can come out of this and make society better. Mm. You know, I remember after, after the GFC or during the sort of GFC immediately afterwards, I was based up in Canada and I lost a lot of dough as did a lot of other people. But one thing that I remember coming out of that positively was 
that a lot of people started to reassess how they were living because they simply didn't have the same amount of money they had previously. And I noticed people starting to reconnect with others, reconnecting with their family and their friends and spending more time, I guess, doing things with people they loved rather than buying things that they thought would make them happy. Mm. I don't know whether that lasted, but it was a cool thing that I saw around me at least. And, and maybe people now will start to reassess where they're at as well. Yeah, because you, you sort of touched on that in that presentation at Welfare, didn't you? Yeah, and, and I think it's a really interesting thing to think about because we get so tied up with the mechanics of what we're doing because we assume that achieving a certain arbitrary goal will make us happy. But if it's the wrong goal, it won't. But, it, and, but that goal is just constantly, if, if, if you sort of <clears throat> got an appetite for it and you're ambitious, the, the goal just keeps, it's, it's always at arm's length. You never, there isn't some magical moment exactly it's the and, I, and i'm guilty of this that i just feel if i do this this and this then i'll get to this point where i can almost take the foot off the gas and and reap the rewards of all the the, the, the hard work that i've put in but yeah that's bullshit yeah the, the goal just kind of slides as, as you slide yeah and that's where i think it's that constant that constant reassessment of anyone's why or even why's you know why do we do what we do so in other words what are the things we actually want to occur as a result of the of achieving this goal it's certainly not that if you want to run a marathon i mean running a marathon is kind of neither here nor there i don't think anyone would see that as an objectively desirable thing to do to run 42 kilometers or whatever it is but the things that they experience as a result of that you know maybe the increased fitness or the you know getting back into shape or, or feeling like they've really achieved something because that means something to them. I mean, all of these things are slightly different to the actual achievement of the goal per se. Mm. And I, I think sometimes we put so much on the goal that it, it can, in some respects, even drive negative outcomes. I remember when I, um, you know, I won some weightlifting um, competitions and after the, the one that I really wanted to win, I came home and I was depressed for two weeks. Yeah. I was like, what? Well, what am I going to do now? <laughs> well, I'm kind of guilty of, of a bit of that. Um, and I'm experiencing that at the moment is that um, in, a, in a bid to kind of attain this mystical, magical goal that, you know, there's a part of my brain that knows that that will never exist. I kind of stress my physiology um, to the point where I've, gotten sick you know yeah um yeah and so i've kind of have i'm having to kind of wrestle with with all that and realize that there is there is no end game and can you take contentment and satisfaction from other things or you know not hitting the bullseye every time because you know you know, I, I, I've been working, workshopping this with a therapist this morning, just for transparency. Um, the, the, la, the last sort of, the last sort of seven or eight years, what I've been doing in order to, to share my message is going against, like driving head on against myself. Myself as an individual is quite private. Um, 
I know I was inherently shy as a kid. So in order to do, in order to share your message um, as best you can, you have to tread over all that fear and, and go right up against it, overcome it, because you're going to be on camera, you're going to be um, presenting, you're going to do all these things that terrify the, the crap out of you. Yeah. But you're so passionate about your message, you, you want to do that. Mm. But what that does and what that's done, in, in my instance, it's, it's caused eight years of, of stress. It's called eight, eight years of sort of, um, not, not to suggest that I'm public speaking every day, but there's enough events and episodes within my calendar year that cause me enough stress that almost makes it chronic. Yeah. And, that, and that's that resulted in me getting shingles about six weeks ago. And like as, as terrible as it was, and I'm still sort of, um, I'm still, still sort of, it hasn't left my body completely. It gave me, it, it was a bit of a reset, N- not um, physically, but sort of mentally. It's like, well, what am I doing? Like, what am I, I'm just trying to attain the unattainable for, for what end? for being stressed all the time. And when I'm stressed, I, I'm distant. I sort of retreat within myself. And so I'm not a good partner. I'm not a good husband. Mm. Um, and that's my world. Like that's my family is my world. So if I'm, I'm not there and I'm not present, I'm not engaged, I'm not loving and all those things, then who, who am I serving? Like, so yeah. I, I, I haven't, I haven't, I think I need to, it's not to say that I can't still work with the intensity that I do, but I think I need to clearly manage the, the stress that comes with that. And I, that's, that's the bit that, I, that I'm working on. Yeah, I, I, um, I understand 100% because this year, I mean, I, I do a fair bit of speaking and this year I had a lot booked in and to be completely honest, they were really lucrative gigs as well. So yeah. it was going to be, it, it's always a significant part of what we do business wise or what I do business wise. Um, and this year it was going to be especially so. And so there was, but basically when this all started, as you can imagine, every gig just started being canceled through the year. The thing is I, on the one hand, I, I was disappointed because I, I really, I actually enjoy the feeling of, especially afterwards of having done it and oh, hopefully yeah. influence someone, you know, and, and you get that feedback where, you know, I really enjoyed that. It's really cool. So that sort of drives me to some degree and I really want to do a good job. But at the, on the other hand, I was incredibly relieved because I think I had probably got to a point where there were almost too many gigs, too many big gigs, and I was really struggling to to get through it all and so i was actually glad to have the break to be honest right you know and if some gigs came up you know if some gigs come up next year of course i'm going to take them but i'm going to be circumspect about the gigs um how i feel about them the topics i'm presenting basically making sure that things are really in line with with my ethos um because i I, um because it's sort of i'm always intrigued as to how it affects other people i mean public speaking is a it's not an uncommon thing. 
but you, you know, I was around you um, the day that you spoke. I mean, we both spoke. Um, you were the sort of keynote, so you came on at the end. I know for me, I can't be around anyone if I'm talking within, you know, a couple of hours. I just want to be in a hotel room or at home or, you know, away from it. But you have, and I was quite envious of this, you have this ability to socialise and come and see the other speakers. And I was like, he's got it down pat. He's able to, like, you know, walk through his day as normal and then just walk on stage kind of un un seemingly untouched by, by anxiety or nerves or... I'm glad I present that facade <laughs> because it's not 100% correct. Uh, I think I, I, I have become more comfortable with that over the years and I've put myself into situations purposefully where I I haven't been able to have the, the isolation time or maybe I haven't had the ability to pre prepare as much. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I try and do quite a lot, even if it's just with my students, is jump on and do do lives and things like that because and, and do them without preparation. So mm -hmm. it's just basically stream of consciousness to make sure that I can be just truly responsive in the moment. Um, but no, I, I get really, I, I get really anxious before a, an event. Uh, I, I need to have time. Like I'll shoot off without people noticing to my hotel room, and I'll have a lie down. I might do some meditation. I might, you know, read through my my talk and go through it in my head. Um, you know, I like to make sure I'm really well prepared because that's the only way that I feel that I'll actually be comfortable up on stage. Uh, when I first started speaking, this is going back 20 odd years ago, I could literally, like, this is n no bullshit. I, I couldn't eat for about two days before an event. Ah. I was so nervous and I wouldn't sleep. I'd just be so almost catatonically nervous leading up to it. And by the time you got to the gig, you're wrecked, right? Yeah. And I would get up and do it. And it was, I, I think I was okay at it. And I got a lot better over the years. Um, certainly not claiming that I'm anything special now, but I think I've certainly improved over 20 yeah, years of speaking. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I don't know why I decided that I had to do it. It probably actually came from a lack of confidence and insecurity and wanting to prove myself mm. that I got over that hurdle. But in many respects, I look back and think, I'm really surprised that I actually did it given how it made me feel. Yeah, or came back for more. Yeah, exactly. Like, what's wrong with me? I remember doing one at um, <laughs> I remember doing one at the MCA in Sydney, probably about ten years ago, eight years ago or something. Yeah, 100, 150 people in the audience, and back then, in my in my mind, I thought if I take notes or if I'm, you know, even if I leave them at the lectern or if I'm holding anything, that's very amateurish. But I was a fucking amateur, so I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, no, I just want to do it with no sort of, <laughs> no assistance. I, I, I do now, I'll take some, some notes. Or I, that, that, the well-fed presentation was the first time I'd ever used PowerPoint. Oh, and well. it's a million times easier, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so back then I had this 45 minute monologue in my head like a rehearsed script yeah so i started probably got about 10 or 15 minutes into it and then i just veered off track like i'm talking verbatim like 
recounting it verbatim and I just veered off track and I couldn't, couldn't, I didn't know because I was so rigid, I didn't know how to get back on. I couldn't remember what my next sort of line was. Mm. And then fear crept in. No, I didn't creep in. It just fucking catapulted in. And I, and I, I did this thing called splitting. So part of your sort of fight or flight response, obviously I'm standing up in front of people. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to run out the door, but your brain splits. And so your brain takes flight. Yeah. Yeah. So at yeah. That moment, um, I have no recollection what, I, what I'm saying, um, my train of thought, why I'm even standing up. I don't even know what the topic is. I'm just seeing all these faces staring back at me. Um, and at that point, the guy who was sort of um, sharing the stage with me could see that I was just in this spiral and not, not able to kind of climb out. And he jumped in. And, and spoke for the next 20 minutes, which left me on stage just flapping in the breeze, right? I'm just like, great, this is... But that, it was, as horrendous as it was, it taught me that I never wanna, want that to happen again. Yeah. I did kinesiology, I, I went and saw a, a speaking coach, I did all the things I thought I needed to do to ensure that that never happens again. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't. Um, and, but I think largely that's to do, to do with just doing it, just doing it repeatedly. Definitely. And, and I think like any craft, you know, the, the more you do, the, the better you should get at it. Yeah. Great word. I mean, it's, it's a craft and you become better at your craft and, you know, any craft is really about marrying up the, the fundamental knowledge with technique. Right. And I think the techniques, that maybe people don't realize they're developing, they're critically important. Um, you know, like the, the technique of storytelling. You know, I, I know that I'm gonna have stories that to someone listening, they maybe think, oh, he's just, you know, gone off on a tangent with the story. Well, no, I, I knew I was gonna tell that story. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or um, maybe I do go off on a tangent, but because I know what each block is yeah. that I'm talking about, I know that when I get back there, yeah, I can loop back, yeah. but I couldn't get up there and speak if I were, if I was relying on memorizing a speech, there no. is no way it, it has to be a story that I'm telling. Have you, have you had any sort of Royal fuck ups like the one I described? I, I can't remember a particular instance, but there are a couple of times where I've given a really poor talk. <laughs> And it's been, it's probably, it's been under preparation or it's been where someone's asked me to do a, a talk that I'm not really that happy about doing. I kind of do it and, you know, you, you don't mean to, but maybe you under prepare, maybe you put things in the, in a, you know, you organize it in a really poor order. And while you're up there, you're thinking, what the fuck am I doing? This is stupid. I'm, I'm screwing this up. I'm, it's not fun for anyone. No. Can I just start from the beginning, please? <laughs> well, let's just can it. Let's just not do it. Um, I got really good advice from Dr. Ian Brooks, though. He was New Zealand's biggest selling business author, and he's the, the father of my best friend. And uh -huh. so he was sort of a mentor growing up, and he, he was a very well-known public speaker. Um, so he used to fly around the world giving uh, talks about business. He was sort of known as the, the, customer, the, the customer service, customer excellence sort of guy. Right. And he told me that he went to a, I think he was invited to speak at a conference in the States. 
if I get the story wrong, apologies, Ian, but I think it was a conference in the States and he turned up to his session and there was one person in the audience. Oh. And you, he, you know what he did? He just went up there and tried to give the best speech he could possibly give. Right. Whereas most people would sort of say, oh, well, let's change this up a little bit and oh, have you got any questions or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. but he just said, no, I'm going to do this as if there were a thousand people in the auditorium. Oh. I'm just going to get up and do it. Um, and it, it plays into a, another quote I love is Henry Rollins says, you know, nothing can go wrong up here. So when he's on stage, either speaking or performing with his band, his mindset is nothing can go wrong up here. Right. No matter what is actually going wrong. Yeah. The audience need to have a great yeah. experience. So the, you know, the mics might be falling over and the place yeah. is falling down where it does. He's doing his job. Doesn't matter about anything else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's having one person in the audience is more terrifying to me than having 10,000. I prefer 10,000 than one. No doubt. <laughs> Especially if that person starts booing or something. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> um, so or if they fall asleep. <laughs> I've had that. I've had quite a bit of that. I've had people fall asleep. I've had people who just look like they're disinterested. I've had people looking like they want to kill me. And in some, in yeah. some cases, it's funny because, yeah, you. Yeah. In some cases, that same person, I've been thinking, oh, God, they hated it. They've come up afterwards and said, oh, I really enjoyed that. It's like, what's wrong with you there? Like, why do you look the way you look? Like, is that your normal face? <laughs> I, I kept getting, um, a couple of years ago, I, I seemed to do, like, a few back-to-back. And -back. On, on each occasion, there'd be a, a guy. So, for whatever reason... 90% of the people that come to my talks are female and you get like a small handful. Have you looked in the mirror? <laughs> <laughs> Not this year. Um, no, I, no, I don't think it's anything to do with that. I think it's just women tend to make decisions on health in the household. and Absolutely. Yeah. But thank you. Um, <laughs> and so I did about three or four in a row that, the one or the two guys that would come would just sort of sit there and they don't want to make eye contact because, you know, I've got this, you don't need to tell me what's going on. And so their heads aren't up, but then slowly over time, they just, you know, I think they're on their phone under the table, but they're actually asleep and they <laughs> in the front row. And so for the first couple, I just let it slide because, you know, I don't want to make an awkward moment of the thing. Um, and he might be genuinely exhausted by his, by his day, you know? Yeah. But it is actually so, you know, you, you, you've got that sort of dialogue now in your head. You've got that narrative while you're speaking your presentation, you've got this inner voice saying, this is boring as batshit. This guy's asleep. You need to sort yeah. it out. Yeah. So anyway, on the third occasion, I, I just pulled him up. I said, oh, so, sorry, sir, sir. So you seem to have fallen asleep. Um, if you wouldn't mind just either staying away or fucking off, <laughs> it's, it's very off-putting. Um, and it is. Uh, it's disrespectful. Um, anyway, I, I sat quite far up the back during your talk where the lights were quite dim, so you probably didn't notice that I had 40 wings, but <laughs> you had that opportunity. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, um, 
I figure I get paid relatively well for speaking. So if someone wants to pay and, and go to sleep, that's fine. It's probably cheaper to get a cheap motel room. Yeah. But, you know, whatever floats people's boat, maybe that's their thing. You know, I'm not going to get in the way of what your fetish is to go and Could be what, you know, sleep in front, sleep in an audience. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, just on you a little bit, Cliff, um, you grew up in, in Auckland. What was your, um, or did you, did you grow up in Auckland? Yeah, I did. I grew up on the North Shore of Auckland. Yeah, right. What, um, was, your, what was Cliff like as a kid? A little less beard, maybe. Yeah. I think on the whole, I was a, a pretty, I think I was a pretty easy kid, to be honest. It's, it's right. weird because a lot of the things that I now, well, maybe not right now, but some of the things I struggled with a lot through, say, my 20s and 30s um, are, are quite opposite to how I was when I was a kid. Like, I, I, I used to sleep anywhere sleep right through the night. You know, uh, I'm still an early riser, but I'd, I'd wake up really early. And um, I was, I was just a, a very normal kid, I think. Nice. Um, except for the fact that I think I did get into a few interesting things quite early in life. You know, I, I saw my old man uh, who was a, he was, he was running marathons at the time. He got into yoga when I was really young, like about three years old for flexibility, but he didn't realize there was a lot more to it. And then he did realize there was a lot more to it. He got quite into yoga. And so I used to basically mimic what he was doing when he was doing yoga in the living room. So I got into yoga when I was really young, um, developed a bit of an interest through the, the books that he had on yoga and Eastern philosophy. And so my mum, who was a devout Christian actually, but she hadn't brought us up in the tradition because she figured that if, if we wanted to, we would. If we didn't want to and wanted to follow another path, that was fine. So she was very non-conversional. Um, she bought me my first books on Buddhism and Hinduism yeah. and all sorts of stuff. And, and I really got into that. Uh, I would have been, by that stage, I would have had an interest in it for a while, but I probably started getting my first books probably in my early teens, sort of 12, yeah. 13. And none of your peers are doing this, or I'm assuming. <laughs> they thought it was really weird because by the time I guess I was about 15 or 16 I was a practicing Buddhist and yeah. you know was so for a long time through to my probably mid-20s and it's not that I'm not now I just don't really have a you know tradition that I follow per se um and so, so the, yeah I, in the whole num your whoring gig your and what's but, that <laughs> I, my best mate growing up was his mum and dad were Buddhists oh yeah and they had like a little shrine in their living room and then twice a day would come um, burn incense uh, have ah. and do the there's this chant num your horing gegior i don't know whether that has anything to do with anything but that's it, what i mean very diverse sort of i wouldn't even call it a religion very diverse philosophy because it, it's really tempered by the the locale so you know you might be brought up in a tradition that's you know from vietnam or from you know china or northern india or whatever and they're all going to be very different because they often take on the local deities right. um, but in buddhism there's no god per se it's not really it's not that they say there's no god or there is a god it's just that that's not actually the the imperative thing the imperative thing is how we're living now and i guess the things we're doing to to, to recognize the, the the human condition um so my my approach was always very much what you'd probably call a sort of um, probably a, you know, a very Western sort of lack of a better term, non-dogmatic form, you know, and I was probably most attracted to sort of the, um, 
the, the teachings are, you know, sort of the teachings that come through Chan and Zen Buddhism, which is typically not very dogmatic. It's more just about the practice. You know, it's about doing, doing the meditation. You're sitting mindfulness of breath, that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I was very, I guess I thought about a lot of things that maybe my peers weren't thinking about so much that drove me to have a lot of frustration and discontentment. With, with um, society or with your friends or? Yeah, no, with, not with my friends. Mm-hmm. I, I'm actually still, all my good buddies, we're still best mates now, you know, having met in kindergarten. So we're going on, you know, 40 odd years and we, we still catch up all the time. You know, we've got a, at the moment, because we're all obviously around the world in different places, we've got a little Zoom meetup that we're doing every Friday to have a yeah. beer. Yeah. It's cool stuff. But yeah, no, it was more frustration with just the world as it stands. And, um, you know, that led to through a circuitous, a bunch of circuitous events to me being kicked out of high school. And then much later, well, not much later, the, the following year, I was kicked out of university and, and all sorts and eventually came back. But so you're um, a, a violent, aggressive Buddhist, were you? <laughs> I certainly wasn't violent or aggressive. What were you doing to get kicked out? Um, oh, I got kicked out of school for wearing a skirt. Yeah, right. <laughs> so n- nothing to do with your, your philosophy? No, nothing at all. No, I was sort of a, a nonconformist and I, I didn't suffer fools gladly. You know, I had a teacher, my French teacher used to say if I was sort of drifting off, he'd say, oh, would you rather be running around the field? Like, yeah, I would. To say, well, off you go. So I'd run around the field, and um, and uh, my science teacher one year said, "Oh, do you do you even like being in my class?" And I said, "Not really," because I was just being honest. And he yeah. said, "Oh, well, you don't don't come back." Yeah, right. And then, so uh, he, he wouldn't let me in the class. So I basically didn't go to for an entire year. I didn't go to science class. So you'd, have, <laughs> you'd have those hours just kind of walk in the corridors. Oh, just hang out. Yeah, outside. I kick a footy. You know, kick a football around and. Have a bit of fun, go and shoot shoot some hoops. Um, basically, what I did, and then um, yeah, the end of the year, I think I I didn't ace it, but I came pretty damn close to acing the the exam. Just the thought, yeah, and thought, well, fuck you. <laughs> Just do it. So were you because, reading the textbooks out of class? Um, I don't. I, mean, it was, it I don't. Was rem- the teacher, not the subject, right? Yeah, I don't, re- I don't remember specifically, I, I certainly didn't specifically learn for it, but I I read a lot growing up anyway. So I had already read a lot of books and I was interested in things. So I would read books about science anyway. So I guess I just absorbed a lot of knowledge just because I was interested in things. Um, I wasn't interested in conforming to a way of doing things, particularly when someone was a dick. Um, but I like concepts, right? So I just read about interesting stuff and absorb it. And yeah, didn't didn't seem to have too much trouble with that side of things. I had more trouble with um, arbitrary authority and what I saw as being sort of injustice. So yeah, getting kicked out was, certainly wasn't a, a big protest. What what basically happened was I was also, despite all that other weirdness going on, I was the captain of our high school first fifteen, right? So in in New Zealand, obviously rugby is like a religion. I was the captain of the first fifteen, so that's a pretty big honour. And um, we wore we didn't have to wear a uniform in our final year of high school. And so uh, they, they would occasionally have these days where the rest of the school could come in mufti, you know, not in uniform. Oh, so j- just the team didn't have to wear. No, no, the, 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 in the final year. So seventh form, right. which is now year 13 or whatever they call it, didn't have to wear a uniform at the time. 
they do now because of what we did. But um, the rest of the school had to wear a uniform. There were certain days where you didn't have to wear a uniform and yeah. you'd, you'd basically donate to charity, right? So you'd bring two bucks or whatever and that would go to charity and you could not wear a uniform. So on that one of those days, because we didn't wear a uniform anyway, I said to the guys in the first 15, well, why don't we um, make a bit of fun for the younger kids and whatnot? We'll come along because we're supposed to be the jocks of the school. We'll wear skirts. Right. Uh, that seems, seems a bit of fun. So we all turned up wearing skirts and um, the the powers that be at the school hit the roof. Right. There was a lot of old wowsers. I'd say they're pretty, you know, homophobic and they were worried that we were actually, you know, that, that we were cross-dressing right. <laughs> legitimately. If we were, that should have been great as well, but they mm. didn't see it that way. Um, and so, yeah, they basically said, well, you can either get into, you know, normal clothes, quote unquote, or, yeah. or you can go home. So I said, oh, I'll take the second option, thanks, I'm off. So I jumped in my car and went home. And I was sitting at home stewing about it, thinking, that's not right. You can't really send someone home for wearing a skirt. Yeah. So I called up uh, Youthline, which was like a youth law service, and said, oh, I've been sent home. And they said, why? And I said, oh, I was wearing a skirt. <clears throat> and they said, is there any rule against wearing skirts? And I said, no. And they said, and, you know, the, the, the women in your form, the girls in your form can wear skirts? Like, yeah. And they said, well... They, they can't do that. You can go back. Yeah. Right. And they said that they wouldn't recommend this, but you can go back wearing the skirt. So what did I do? Well, I reckon you would have <laughs> gone back wearing a skirt. Yeah. And a blouse, probably. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, did long you story short. The, a collective with the other players or just you on your own? It was just me. I think no one else wanted to rock the boat. You yeah. know, too, too much to lose. Um, but I thought bugger it I'll go back I I'd kind of I wasn't too concerned if they kicked me out they kicked me out they, they did eventually kick me out which was highly illegal um, that. so you, you got expelled because of that they couldn't expel me because when you expel a student it's actually quite a big deal you need to go through a, a process and it gets sound, sent down to the um, Ministry of Education and they need to confirm it and stuff because you're you're, you're taking education away from someone which is a pretty big deal um, they couldn't do that, so they just basically asked me not to come back. But definitely, yeah. But what what then happened was the coaches of the first fifteen said we need Cliff to play. Yeah, footy. Can, he, can he come back on training days? Well, pretty much that's what happened. They said, can he stay until the end of the rugby season? Yeah, stay on the books. Um, yeah, and they said that's fine, but we don't want him going to class. So I um I'd basically go into school for for training and to help. Um, train little kids how to play footy and that was that was my the rest of my year wow. so that's like <laughs> the last six months or something yeah <laughs> and then you had exams at the end of that then I was gone um, I was out they, they, they didn't want me there so I had basically done you left school with no no qualification well I had done what we call six form certificate which was the year before right and because I was pretty smart i had actually done quite a lot of what we called bursary at the time which was our seventh form our final qualification i'd done a bit of that beforehand so i'd already done bursary english and um i think i'd done bursary mathematics and maybe some bursary sciences or something so i'd pretty much done a lot of it anyway right. so I, I could at that stage i could go on and i i could study the following year so i studied at aut the next year right yeah yeah that so, wouldn't happen these days would it oh no no, it, it would be, we were, I was talking about that with, um, I actually went out with one of our teachers from school has become quite a good friend 
subsequently. Um, she was quite a young teacher. Her husband was also a teacher at school and they were quite young uh, relatively. And so we became quite good friends and we're still very good friends now. And we went out the other a few weeks back now, just before the lockdown. Uh, one of my buddies is in a band. He was back touring. And so we went to see him play and, and they said, it's interesting because those things that was, that were so big back then would just be nothing now. No, <laughs> they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't even want to raise an eyebrow, would they? You know, like, yeah, it's it, a different <clears throat> landscape. And rightly so. I think, you know, we had a lot of, I think we had a, a lot of really negative gender stereotypes stuff around. And I think hopefully it's getting to a point now where like there, there are always going to be differences based on biological sex. You know, I firmly believe that, but at the same time, there's also a huge interplay between that and what we socially condition as being like gender norms and that plays into a lot of different stuff mm. and I think you know if, if someone wants to wear because I, I also used to wear skirts socially as well but that was different that wasn't at school that was just because I you know if I saw a cool skirt and I wanted to wear it I'd wear it um, you know you you are obviously friends with me on Facebook you my profile picture is me basically wearing a skirt yeah next to Bella at a wedding and when I saw that when we first became friends I I, I thought it I thought it was a fucking great look. It's such a, it's such a, and I've always thought, um, probably since uh, David Beckham, probably 20 years ago, wore a sarong and he was blasted all over the media. And I was like, he looks fucking cool. But it's yeah. just, um, yeah, it's, it's um, a different landscape now, thankfully. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have kids, obviously. Uh, you know, you you do, I don't. Um, Bella and I have sort of talked about if and when we we have kids, then we don't want to sort of create those those archetypes that people have to conform to. You know, mm -hmm. if we had a son and he wants to wear a skirt, cool. If we have a daughter and she wants to do whatever, that's that's completely cool. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, hey, I mean, it, it's those things are not what is conditioned within us biologically. Yeah that stuff's the social stuff. And I think if we start to, you know, put people into boxes because of that, that's when we start to see that bigotry and, um, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff rises. Yeah. So then you went to, um, so you're, now you're at uni. Yeah, then I'm at uni and um, that was a whole different sort of situation where I started to see some flaws in, in what we were being taught. You know, I, I, um, it didn't make sense. We, we were being taught certain things about the, the roles of macronutrients, protein, carbohydrates, fat, and you know what, what their roles were in the human body. And then we're told something that seemed to be quite an opposition to that at our um, nutrition classes. You know, nutrition classes would basically say you've got to prescribe, you know, let's say 65% plus calories from carbohydrate. And I'd sort of start doing the math, you know, as I'm working, starting to work with clients as a student practitioner and whatnot. And if I gave people all that carbohydrate, there wouldn't be enough to optimize their protein and fat intake. And so it just, there was this disconnect. And so I, I was also at the time doing a lot of reading, you know, I was doing a lot of sort of self-directed learning and a lot of the, the research that was coming out was quite an opposition to what we were learning. So I would just ask questions. I wasn't really saying, you know, you're wrong. What I was saying is, Hey, what about this? And eventually it just became too frustrating for the lecturers. And they said, 
um, go and see the dean, and the dean said, um, you've done enough to pass, but don't go back. Wow. So I, I spent a bit of time surfing and, and training. <laughs> Playing people on street names. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's like yeah. high, high school all over again. Yeah, yeah. I think I, sh I should have become a better basketball player with all that spare time, but... <laughs> yeah, practice. So then... So then um... <clears throat> Well, it's a good job you're as smart as you are, or else you, you wouldn't have uh, popped out the other side of either high school or uni with the qualifications you had, eh? Have you ever had your IQ tested? Uh, yeah, okay, I've had a couple of tests. Uh, I, I don't know if it's incredibly high. I think it's sort of high, high 140s or early 150s kind of thing. Right. Um, but, I mean, that's luck, right? It's yeah. the luck of the draw, and yeah. I'm incredibly grateful that I have a, um, a mind that can understand concepts relatively quickly and I can remember concepts fairly well. I, I've got a very good, you know, brain for general knowledge and stuff like that. Anyone who knows me will sort of attest to that, but I'm not, I'm certainly not trying to be aggrandizing here because it's luck. And that, because of that, I, I think that we need to be very aware of those, those traits that we have that allow us to succeed and not be overly derisive of those people who maybe don't have those traits because, Hey, a lot of what we have and what we're able to do is to some degree luck, mm -hmm. you know, it's a bit of a genetic lottery or maybe it's a social lottery where we happen to be born into shit. I, I was born in one of the safest countries on the planet with really good social support. And I've got a great family who have supported me through hard times and I'm pretty clever. You're already at the top of the pile. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white man. Mm. right there's not much better advantage that i could have had and so i'm not one of these people who sits back and says well i've you know everything i've got i've built off the sweat of my own back it's like i've worked hard but there's all these other things that have helped and i'm not going to put someone else down who maybe hasn't had the same advantages yeah and so then then you did um your <clears throat> knee deep in in um doing your PhD research, ketosis, all that. But what, and I'm sure you've spoken about that um, ad nauseum. So I don't really want to speak about that per se. But what I'd love to talk about is, or ask you about, is that arc between talking about that and being a sort of um, a resource for, for that topic, um, but sort of segueing into talking about what you spoke at well fed, which was not what I was expecting at all. Um, and maybe, um, I think we, we spoke about this offline and maybe it's something that you, you, you're well versed in speaking about. Um, and it's all very familiar to you, but it was, it wasn't familiar to me. I was like, well, this, I know Cliff as the, um, the king of ketosis and nutrition science. Um, so that's what he's going to talk about. But there wasn't any reference to any of that topic. In fact, it was about um, striving for... Was it even happiness or was it contentment? I think... Anyway, what, what I'm trying to say is... Ha, ha, what, what is that arc going from, you know, being... being um, an academic mm. now I'm sure you can talk about that if you're asked but 
what you actually wanted to talk about was was more sort of emotive and and heartfelt sort of thing yeah so i really think that comes from having that inquisitive mind and being quite having that sense of discontentment right dissatisfaction that i think we all have and thinking about that at, at quite a young age like why are we discontent you know what is this sort of universal in Buddhism, they call it suffering, right? But it's actually more like discontentment. What's this universal discontentment that people have. And I got, it's almost as if I got sidetracked at one point because I got into health and nutrition, fitness, strength training, all that kind of stuff. Because before I was the captain of the first 15, the coaches had said, look, you need to put on a lot of weight. I was a pretty skinny kid. They said, you got to put on a lot of weight. If you don't, um, you won't make the team. If you do, you'll captain the team. It's like, okay. So that kind of sidetracked me because I started looking into the human body and I became fascinated about it. So I learned all that I could about the human body and about nutrition and strength training. And that gave me a passion for being originally a strength coach and nutritionist. And then eventually, you know, much more in the nutrition field. But I, I also had that background in meditation and yoga and those other things. So I kind of incorporated those into my practice. But the epiphany actually came when I hit the wall. I must have been about 23 or 24, maybe, maybe a little bit older, maybe about 25, because I think at that stage I've been in practice. I started in practice really young while I was still a student, student practitioner. So I'd been in practice about seven years and I, I hit the wall. I was completely exhausted and I was frustrated and I didn't know why. Uh, I went over to my old man's place to talk to him about maybe how I could do my business a little bit better realized when I got over there, to, I wasn't there to talk about my business. I was there to talk about life. And I just burst into tears and said, mate, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I, I don't know what to do. And he said, you just need a break. He said, take some time, think about where you're at, where you want to go, where you want to be heading, all that kind of stuff. So I did, I took a break and I, I took about a year off. Maybe it was a bit longer. I spent probably six or nine months of that in South America, just traipsing around, um, spent a bit of time in Buenos Aires at the end in Argentina. And that's where I started writing my first book, right? My first book was supposed to be a nutrition book, but I couldn't get past this idea that it's not about so much nutrition. It's about what we want to achieve because of that. So I started writing a rambling sort of introduction, which included, you know, goal setting and objectives and how we can really choose the life we want to be living. It's actually not a great book. I'm going to be straight up because I was very, <laughs> it was a long time ago, but that became my first book, which had nothing to do about with nutrition. What's that? Went through a good doorstop. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I now use it. Yeah, I do. I now use it to, um, I've got a, like a, a, a plug in desk on my, Oh, 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 sorry, a plug-in lamp on my desk and that sort of buffers so it doesn't hurt the desk. Anyway, started writing this book. It became basically my first book, Choosing You, which was not about nutrition at all. It was about how we can choose to live the life we want to live. And that epiphany that was involved with writing that was basically that I was beginning to define myself, like most people do, as what I do. I'm a strength coach. I'm a nutritionist. This is what I do. But that led to all this frustration because that didn't recognize my why. So when I realized that, I started thinking, well, shit, this is not important so much. 
what's important is why I want to be doing this. So what, what is that? You know, what does that actually look like? And so I started playing around just with a big piece of paper, brainstorming all these ideas of what I really want my, my best case life to be, you know, what I really want to be doing. And there were some certain themes that, that kept coming up. Like I want to be experiential. So at the time travel was really important to me. Um, being able to be of service to others was critically important. Um, you know, educating, basically helping people to be happier was really important. And I realized that no matter what any of us do, we're actually helping people to be happier. If we look at it realistically, we're helping people to be happier. You know, you train someone, let's say, and you help them to be fitter, stronger, whatever. It might be because they're an athlete and they want to achieve that goal. That's part of their life of happiness. So it's not about the training to be stronger. It's about helping them achieve their life of happiness. Mm. If we're working in retail and we're providing something of value to someone, that's because it's helping them to live their life of happiness. You know, again, I'll go back to an Ian Brooks story. He told me he was at a, um, speaking at an oil convention and he said to them, what do you sell? Like oil. No, you don't. Like we sell oil. It's like, no, no. What do you really sell? It's like, boy, we sell oil. It's like, no, 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 you don't, no one wants oil. No one wants to like get oil and pour it all over themselves and go, yeah, this is amazing. You know, no one wants to have oil. What they want to have is the, the petrol to put in their car to go on a trip with their family or, you know, the petrol that allows them to go out for a fishing trip or whatever it happens to be, right? That's the outcome. So I really started to think about it in that sort of way. So now we're talking about, probably 15 years later, um, this has really re-entered. It's always been there, but it's re-entered my sphere a lot more because I've gone through that process of being very heavily involved in research, um, you know, being very down in the numbers of, of nutrition and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm really, it's like I'm getting back out there now amongst my clients and doing a lot more speaking and things and, and recognizing that people have become so fixated on the idea of health. They're not always necessarily thinking about how their life can expand as a result of being healthy. In other words, they're seeing health as the goal when in fact health is the foundation by which you start to achieve the goals that are most important. You know, sure. health isn't arbitrarily important. What's important is being healthy or whatever so that you can, feel great to spend time with your kids or, you know, yeah. be more productive, be more effective. Whatever. The, the, the freedom and the luxury to do all the things that you want to do. Yeah. And I think when we start to think about life in this way, it changes everything because even with some of the areas that I'm tangentially very interested in as a researcher and, and as a practitioner, like um, the decriminalization or legalization of cannabis, like the intelligent use of psychedelics, we often pigeonhole those into, okay, who can we treat? We can treat people with PTSD and we can treat people who have severe intractable depression, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I'm fully in favor of that. And the evidence is, is beginning to be there and we need to do more research and all those various things are happening. But why don't we also talk about how can things like that or meditation or whatever it happens to be, not just help people to treat disorder, but maybe help people to think differently so that they can increase their human potential and we start to act differently and have a different type of society where people are more interested in 
being happy and helping one another rather than just being fixated on the mechanics of day-to-day life. Yeah, right. That's, you're quite the sage. <laughs> because what else is there? You know, I think we don't put enough attention into how we as normal everyday people can increase our human potential, you know, because I think if you ask, I, I, I put this in my latest book, The Credo, that, you know, if you ask anyone what their ultimate goal is, it would probably be to be happy. You know, mm. at the end of the day, people want to be happy. And a lot of people then say, well, that's naive. It's simplistic. You know, it doesn't actually mean anything. Well, sure, we, we could make a claim for any of those. But mm. if you ask someone, they want to be happy. And most people know what it feels like to be at times in their life when they are happy, content, present, you know, aware of the world around them, being actually more comfortable within their own skin and in their in, in their environment. Mm. And so... The people come to you uh, so a new client would come to you as a practicing naturopath dietitian nutritionist but then your methodology or your recommendations are sort of probably not what they're expecting do you get do you get clients that are sort of taken back or how does how does that apply to you know what I came in here for kind of thing. Yeah, I think, um, well, there, there are two aspects of that. I am most well known for, I guess, my work in the sort of carb appropriate, low carb ketogenic space. But as a practitioner, I've always worked as a naturopath, nutritionist and mind body practitioner, right? I know mind body sounds a little bit woo, but I've always used modalities and, and trained in various modalities ever since I was, um, you know, relatively young, right through twenties and thirties. Uh, a lot of people don't realize it in my early postgrad in mind body healthcare um, at AUT. So this is a legitimate university where we're studying the concepts of basically mind and body medicine, because that's really important. So in practice, I've always done that. And I just see it as being a truly, um, evidence-based but holistic approach you know i can't in good conscience speak with someone just about nutrition when you know maybe their sleep patterns are are terrible Mm. and maybe they could benefit from you know living a more mindful life and maybe they're on facebook 11 hours a day you know all of those things are worth discussing but also also outside of those things because they're also the mechanics of health right it's also very much about working with people to, to help them understand what their why is and whether the way they're living is conducive to that. Now, there's a really good benefit in that because once someone starts to see the real end goal as compared to what they thought the end goal was, it actually makes the mechanics easier because it's far more compelling when they start to really connect to that life they could be living to be able to do the things in the moment that make it a reality. You got you got more sort of motivation to to get to that. Absolutely, because if you're just doing the things now because you feel you should, yeah, you're going to do that for a couple of weeks, and then you're going to be back to you know eating Doritos and and gaming all night. Yeah, not there's anything wrong with it if that's what you want to do. (laughs) Is that wrong? (laughs) There's no wrongs or rights. Yeah, there's what works. Yeah, right. But that yeah that that's. 
and it'll help people get off that sort of cyclical kind of yo-yo thing, you know, where they, they jump on a diet or a program or follow a particular protocol because they're not, it's not the motivation isn't from the right source. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it also speaks to, you know, what we were talking about before with this compulsion to, to have to have it now, right? When we are actually aware of how health can, ha happiness, I should say, health into happiness can eventuate over the long term, we realize that we're actually battling against our instincts. Because in a natural setting, anything that we would want to achieve, you know, for example, let's say you and I want to achieve um, certain things in, in business, right? So we, we, we're thinking about that. We've set the goal. We're projecting towards it. But intrinsically, our body and mind want it now. Why? Because anything that we would desire in a natural setting, we would be working towards getting right now. Like you're hungry, hunt and gather. You're tired, sleep. You know, you want to copulate, go and do that. And you're going to do it. You're going to find it, do it. You're going to basically get it done right away. We don't have that luxury nowadays because a lot of the things that we want to achieve, like financial security, that might take many years. Yeah. But the compulsion underneath what we're doing right now is no, don't sleep. Don't cut your workday short. Do yeah. it now. Yeah, which only leads to kind of frustration and dissatisfaction because it's a long game, right? It's Yep. Leads to dissatisfaction, burnout, and it also leads to, I believe, poorer results. And shingles. And shingles, exactly. Well, I, I actually had a realization. It was probably a year, 18 months ago. I think I might have actually talked to you about it, but I had fallen back into a trap, which I have at various times, of just pushing way too hard. You know, working too long, um, you know, not taking breaks when I needed to, all those things that we, we fall into the trap of doing. I had to take a step back and say, well, look, I'm a scientist. At the end of the day, I'm a scientist, right? It's what I do most of the day is look at scientific papers and do all that nerdy shit, right? If I'm doing that, how can I in good conscious, conscience be working 50, 60, 70 plus hours a week? Because I know from having read the research that that is actually driving down my productivity. Mm. So I'm going to go back to the research and take an inductive approach to it and look at all the papers that have been written on this and you know, reaffirm to myself what I already know that working a certain amount of hours in a week is not just more productive per hour, but it's probably in the long term more productive overall. And what's that number? We don't know exactly, but it's somewhere probably between 30 and 50 hours, right. most likely closer to 30, right? Yeah. So if people are working around 30, 35 hours a week, that should be more than ample. You know, how does that translate into a day? Well, to, to me, that basically means, you know, no more than seven hours of, of work time in any given day. Mm. And so now I limit that. So I, I know that I train for an hour every day. So when I start my day, I know that eight hours later, because I've taken an hour out to train, that's when I have to switch off. Mm. And having those rules for myself, those structures has made me, has helped me to get back to being a bit calmer, happier, you know, a, a better person for Bella and others to be around. <laughs> I wonder how that'll play out now that with this sort of everyone working at home and they can manage their time. It's really dependently. 
yeah. it might transpire that they're more productive in the day than rather than getting to the office by 8.30 and staying there till 7 or 8 because there's this sort of, I'm sure in those big companies, there's almost like a culture of the more time you're at your desk, the more work you're going to get done, the more productivity, blah, blah, blah. But to your point, that's, that's not... Yeah, and, and that's why I think people need to be very aware of, of that now. If, if the way we work does shift even subtly, we want for that to obviously be a positive thing, right? So we want for there to be maybe that little bit more freedom where we can take some breaks. We can get outside instead of just being stuck inside our office all day, mm. you know, even if it's just into the garden to get some sun or whatever. Mm. What we don't want it to do is because we're working from home now, for that to mean that we're perpetually at work which a lot of people struggle with when they work from home. Cause like, uh, you know, I've, I've, let's say you've set up a little office. Uh, I can just go into the office and get this finished. Mm. Probably not a good idea. You know, we need to have those times where we are on and the times when we're off. Any athlete knows that you enter the zone, you exit the zone. You can't be in the zone all the time. If you're in the zone all the time, you burn out and you don't perform. So do you have firm parameters around that yourself? Cause obviously there's a temptation because You've got all these businesses that directly feed you. Yep. There must be a temptation to keep kind of pushing all those forward outside of your typical working day. Um, so do you, are you able to harness that at all and say, right, actually for sort of for my mindset, for my, for my interaction with my, you know, with Bella and my family and stuff, I'm going to from six o'clock till eight in the morning, it's devices off. How disciplined are you? Pretty much. I mean, I'm. I think I'm fairly disciplined. Uh, we we don't work in the weekends, for example. We do, you know, get to a point every day, and like I say, it's it's generally, you know, around that eight hours after having started, we'll just basically stop. That's it, and no going back, you know, into any work stuff. Um, we've probably fallen into the same habits that a lot of people have in the last few weeks of checking our phones a bit more because we, we want to know what's going on. Mm. You know, we want to be checking the news around this thing, but typically we're pretty good about, uh, you know, turning our phones off or putting them away. Uh, we certainly put them away for the night. You know, we don't have them by our beds or anything. And so I think all of those habits are really important. They're, they're things that we do. Um, of course, I, I don't want to be, you know, absolutist about this either, or, you know, this sort of utopian idea, because sometimes we all know as business people that we have to get shit done. So sometimes you have to have a long day, right? But it's, it's more so the consistency where, where you don't have to do that, which is, let's face it, the vast majority of the time, you do have those bounds where you say, you know what, that's enough for today. Mm. Um, one thing that I think happens for a lot of people is, and myself included, you get to a point in the day anyway, when you're done, you're actually done. You can't do much more, but you feel you should. Mm -hmm. And that's what I call it. I put it in my, a couple of my books actually that um, I call it the send and receive mentality. I'm going to sit in front of my computer and I, I'm brain dead. So I can't actually do anything productive, but I might sit there in front of my emails, like basically pushing send and receive, hoping something will happen because then I feel productive because I'm still at work. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. And it's <laughs> I think you'll probably agree it's not the most productive thing to be doing with your day. Although, no, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that. Because you, you're waiting for an opportunity, you're waiting for, yeah, it's not a productive state to be in. But yeah, I've just sort of been uh, into the last couple of weeks and I'm 
getting better at it, kind of kept falling off the wagon, but um, not checking my phone until for work or any of them, not picking up my phone until half eight. Yeah. No notifications coming through. Because of what I was doing before I got out of bed, I've, I've checked emails, I've checked WhatsApp messages from, from work colleagues, and that just slipstreams slip you straight into that mentality, stress-inducing kind of zone before I've even said good morning to Teal and, and picked up yeah. some. Um, so I, I've, I've noticed uh, a, a change in my mood. You know, I'm appreciating the, the sun, sunrise and having that coffee with, with no other sort of distractions other than Matilda and Zan. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a small thing to do. And fuck, half eight is not late in the day to start work anyway. Do you know what I mean? It's a realistic, it's a, it's a great time to start. Whereas I'm starting, typically I would, you know, wake up at six and brrr, do all, do all the, you know, emailing at six six in the morning. So like, mm. fix that. Wait wait a couple of hours. Enjoy the the beauty of the morning and spend time with your family. Then crack into it. Yeah, we we do a very similar thing. We you know every morning we we get up, have a, a coffee together. We do admittedly read the news. Um, you know, but we often, you know, we'll end, end up having a big discussion about something. I do the same thing. I don't want to be on social or emails first thing in the morning because then I'm thinking of sort of being distracted by other things. Mm. After we've had that coffee and had a bit of a chat and whatnot and got into our work days, the first thing I do every single day, there's only the very odd exception, but it's so rare as to be, you know, a really rare exception. Every single day, I will, first thing I do is create content whether that's writing towards a new book or writing articles, writing course content, it's always something that's bubbling up. Right. So I do that for a couple of hours. Then I check my emails and I basically try and batch communication. So I, I literally open up Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. I go through and clear all my notifications, bang, 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 bang from all of them. And then I'm done. Uh, then I go and train eat lunch, then come back into uh, work again in the afternoon. I work from home, so it's easy to do, and I train at home as well. Uh, and then in the afternoon, I'm, I'm typically doing creative type stuff, business planning, strategies, you know, our marketing, all that kind of stuff. You know, I'm working on that with, with Valor and the rest of the team. And um, then again, I'll probably check my emails and, and social, do all my communications once more in the day. So it's only twice a day. Mm, that's very good. And it, by batching communication like that, you end up being way more effective. And there's research to show that as well. I, I recently wrote a series of three articles about the effect of media, uh, social media and advertising on our health. And I talked about a lot of the research that, that shows some of these negative effects and how we can mitigate it. Because let's face it, you know, email and social, that kind of stuff is incredibly beneficial for our lives. But if we overuse it, then it does become detrimental like anything else. So how do we minimize the, I guess, the harms while maximizing the benefits and, and continuing within that to have a more mindful life? Um, and I think it's, you know, it's more than achievable for most people. Well, Cliff, speaking of technology, I just want to flag that I'm on 2% battery. <laughs> and that's probably a good, safe place to stop. Well, you know, it was, it was very draining for the Technology, I think it was probably not so draining for us. Hopefully it was more inspiring than draining. <laughs> yeah, well, I know you're a very busy man, so thanks for your time, please. <clears throat> thanks, bud. It's always a pleasure. All right, take it easy. Yes, man.
Thank you.